Let's remain standing as we pray. Heavenly Father, you delight to give your children good gifts. Thank you for all of your provision in our lives. And please take these gifts and the lives that they represent and use them for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom in Nottingham and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take your seats. This week has seen many of our children and young people head back to school, no doubt with a mixture of emotions and practicalities for parents and for school staff, as well as the children and young people themselves. And do you know that some people have noted that the demands of raising children, of educating young people, of forming the next generation, are not dissimilar from the demands of young churches, or even sometimes the demands of very established churches. The joys and the heartaches, the correction that's needed, the tenderness required. And we might imagine that that's how the Apostle Paul felt about the church in Corinth that he was writing to. So let's turn there, page 1144 of the Church Bibles. It really help you to have a Church Bible in front of you or on your app, because not all of the verses that I refer to will be on the screen. So page 1144, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last Sunday, we began our series called An, An Authentically Church, and we spent the majority of our time, time seeing how the church in Corinth had begun. And then we drew out just one implication from the opening verses of uh, Paul's letter to them a few years later, calling them back to being who they truly are, described in verse 2, belonging to God, sanctified, made holy, living distinct lives in the city in which they lived. And I want to come back to these verses today to draw out another phrase that is particularly pertinent for us, especially today. It's there in the second part of verse 2. Call to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Together with all those everywhere. It's difficult to estimate numbers in ancient cities and first century churches, but if we, if we imagine this is a church of 100 people in a city of about 50,000 in Corinth, then we won't be too far out. The point is that the Christians were outnumbered and were far from power and popularity in the city. It was those kinds of proportions. They were outnumbered, but... They were not alone. They belonged to God. Many other groups would have gathered together in Corinth as they do in Nottingham, gathered for entertainment or sports or festivals or protests. But the church was and is the only group that assembles because we together call on the name of Jesus as Lord. Do you see how Paul reminds them here that they're part of something much bigger there to be distinct in the world, not as lone saints, but as a community of people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. B, 
being part of the church everywhere is something that at once both humbles us and lifts us up. To to churches or to Christians that are tending towards thinking, ah, we, we really are the best church. We know what we're doing. Then we're humbled by being reminded that we're not the only pebble on the beach, as one theologian puts it. And I think it does as good as larger churches like, like, like we are for UK standards to be reminded that we're not the only pebble on the beach, even just in Nottingham. And as part of that, we have a role in serving other churches in the city and beyond as, as we're seeing with those who are being sent to support New Whitemore Baptist Church and serving there. We're together called to be his holy people, calling on Jesus as Lord. And then more widely, we've been highlighting the persecution of Christians in Pakistan and elsewhere recently. You can get some more information about that on the Open Doors website or on our emailed notices, as Rue was mentioning. And we might have our own particular pressures at the moment, but we need to, when we feel those, to look up and see the global picture and put things in perspective. The wholeness, the unity of the church is a major theme in the letter and that, that humbles us and it then expands our horizons as it, as it lifts us up from just focusing in on ourselves, from navel gazing, as it lifts our eyes to see God's purposes for his global church. I remember a few years ago now visiting Montenegro and I was, uh, I was there to help on a Christian summer camp alongside Pete Stonelake who's over there. They were mostly students, students from Serbia. And the leaders were, that's not easy to say, students, they were mostly students from Serbia. But the leaders on this camp were from different parts of, uh, well, all over the world, really. And as I, we, we flew in and, and, and got there, and as, as we met together in the, the hotel that the conference, the, the summer camp was happening on, I can just remember that sense of meeting people, Christians from all over the world, but it almost immediately having a sense of being integrally bound with these brothers and sisters whom I'd only just met. Because we were united in the one church of God as we called on the name of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever had, had an experience like that with believers from different, a different part of the world from you? You can have that experience even here this morning. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that's authentically everywhere. And secondly, a church that's authentically enriched. Let me ask you a question. How do you relax? How do you relax? One of the things that I've come to realize about myself in recent years is that I relax by tidying up. I relax by tidying things up. So I relax by doing the gardening and I relax by doing the ironing. I'm not actually an expert in either of these things. So I think it's just the bringing order, completing a task. It's the the tidying up that I enjoy. I know. Well, how do you go go about tidying up a mess? Well, it's a different matter when it comes to people, isn't it? 
ministering into the messiness of real lives, our own and others. That's much, that's much less relaxing, but it's more real. And it's all the more important. I explained last week how the church in Corinth really was a mess. That was what had prompted Paul to to write this letter to them just a few short years after the church had begun. And we'll come to find out that within the church at Corinth, there was squabbling, sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, chaotic worship services, denying key doctrines, and so on. There were massive, massive challenges. So how does Paul respond to this? How would we? Maybe we'd expect to be jumping in with a stern telling off, or in our modern setting, firing off a hasty tweet or immediately cancelling them. But no. Have a look at verse 4 onwards with me. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. How does Paul begin? With encouragement, with thankfulness. He wants to show the love and the care that he has for them. He wants believers' lives to be transformed and he wants them to understand the reasons for changing. And he writes with tenderness, with affection. He's deeply grateful for them, despite all that he knows about them. And these verses begin 16 chapters of careful theological argument, of great pastoral wisdom, of the truth spoken in love, and of grace abounding. God has poured out his gifts on his church. And yes, people have misused those gifts, but they've been enriched because They've been recipients of God's grace and God's gifts. And Paul wants to correct the use of their gifts, not crush them. And we need this kind of encouragement too, don't we? No matter how much of a mess we get in as individuals and as churches, the most important thing about us is that we have received God's grace in Christ Jesus. Let me ground this and make it real for us. I want you to picture in your mind the Christian who brings you the most heartache and who gives you the most headaches. Bring to mind, picture in your mind, the Christian who brings you the most heartache and who gives you the most headaches. the greatest thing in their life is the grace of God. What can you be thankful for about them? Can you say, verse four, over them, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Peter Lewis, our former senior pastor said, do you realize that the Christian brother or sister sitting next to you or behind you or in front 
will one day be a person of immense beauty and glory and wisdom and joy in the eternal kingdom of God. You will never look down on a fellow believer if you remember that. And we must remember that when people in the church are being unreasonable or petty or hurtful or foolish, they will not always be like that. One day they too will shine out like stars in the kingdom of their Father in heaven. Let's expand it out over our church as a whole. What are you more aware of in Cornerstone? The flaws that need correction or the evidences of God's grace? The structures that need strengthening or the culture that is bearing fruit? The gifts that need refining or the riches that the Lord has lavished upon us? How do we deal with mess in our lives, in our church? We begin by cultivating a thankful spirit that looks to the future and to the Lord, looking beyond whatever present situation we might be in to see what God has done, is doing, and will do. And you'll see in verse 7, we read of how they are eagerly, eagerly waiting for our Lord Jesus to be revealed. I wonder, have you ever had a week where by the end of that week, you long for the Lord Jesus to return far more than you did at the start of that week? Have you ever had a week like that? Perhaps for some, that's, that's been your experience this week. Well, there is a future vision of security that enables us to live securely now. Verse 8 and 9. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see that confidence? The confidence is not in the performance of the church, but the faithfulness of God. It might seem like the church is falling apart at the seams, but Christ is holding it together. No matter the uncertainty, the Lord will sustain his people to the end. And let me as well note that, that, that this is the direction that all history is heading in, the return of the Lord Jesus. That is the direction that history is heading in. So when we hear calls to be on the right side of history, we just need to check ourselves to ensure we know which history we're talking about. For followers of Jesus will sometimes appear to be on the wrong side of a particular culture's history in the moment itself. The church in Corinth appeared to be on the wrong side of Roman history. So remember to ask what timeline you are living your life by. And if we lose confidence in God's future, we will become just besotted with the world around us and no longer distinctive. 
For regardless how cultures may twist and turn in this span of human history, one day God will bring this age to a close and we do know where history is going as Jesus will return and put everything right which has gone wrong. And we don't need to fear because God is the guarantor because in Christ he presents us blameless. You'll see that word fellowship and here that word means union or a common union, sharing together, joined with, United with the life of Christ, which means, thirdly, we can be authentically united. My dad worked as a housing officer in local government. And on one occasion, he needed to ring a tenant about a particular matter. And so he phoned up, and as there was no reply... He left, an, he left a message on the answering machine. So he explained what he needed to speak with them about and then said, so if you could give me a call back at the housing office, that would be much appreciated. Amen. <laughs> well, there was no way of recovering that. And I don't know what the tenant made of it when they heard it. But listening to an answer phone message is it's different, isn't it, to hearing two way, two sides of a, two, both sides of a two-way conversation. It's much harder to know what the situation is on the other end of the line if you're just hearing one side or if you're just hearing an answer phone message. And reading 1 Corinthians is a little bit like listening in to an answering machine message from Paul. We have to try and work out what's happening in Corinth, and that's, well, sometimes that's easier to identify than others. But it it seems that there have been divisions emerging which are threatening the unity and the wholeness of God's people in Corinth. And so Paul pleads in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. When you receive an email, you can usually tell from the subject line what the main point of the email is, unless someone's being cryptic or particularly unhelpful. Which does happen, doesn't it? Well, the appeal to unity begun in verse 10 might as well serve for a subject line for the whole of the the first letter to the Corinthians, especially the first four chapters. And yet, knowing that there are such big problems in the church, why does Paul prioritize unity? Why doesn't he just crack on with the stuff that's really causing trouble? Well, in fact, as we look at the major problems in the church, we realize that they're almost all characterized by a combination of pride and division, whether that's over leaders or sexual ethics or litigation or marriage or idol food or corporate worship or spiritual gifts or resurrection. There's a common thread running through them all, and that's division. And so Paul addresses this up front and gets to the specifics later. There are quarrels in the church which he knows about because of verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. There was a a partisan spirit that was leading to disunity. And in this, the real problem was that the church was reflecting the culture rather than being distinct from it. In Greek society, traveling philosophers were common as they promoted their brand of the good life and how to live live it. 
And people would align themselves with a particular school of thought and each claim to be superior over the others. Influencers and followers are nothing new. It wasn't invented by social media. Party spirit was a common fact of ancient city life. And in a way, I think we can sadly see that polarization is becoming a, a common fact of mo well, postmodern life. And the church had exchanged tragically the wisdom of the cross for the wisdom and the ways of the world. And so in the church, cliques were competing against one another. Personalities were being promoted. Even social superiority was being carried over into church life. People scrambled for position and rifts emerge. And it's important that we note that there's no indication that these groups were divided by doctrine. Paul doesn't compromise vital theological issues for the sake of unity here or, or anywhere else. The divisions weren't about doctrine, but about a power struggle between different attachments, different factions. And Paul was horrified. He wants them to see how destructive this was. He wants to reform their outlook, their approach, so that it follows the wisdom and the way of the cross, not that of the world. Do you see how he speaks with, both with tenderness, verse 10, the familial language of brothers and sisters, and with authority in the name of the Lord Jesus? He's got that parental tenderness and solemn authority. Sin and wrong does have to be addressed. It's not just the thankfulness that he brings. He does address difficult matters. He speaks the truth in love. And he longs for them to be a unified community of people who sacrificially love each other, who can experience the shalom of God in Christ. And to use a metaphor from clothing, there's, there's to be no, no ripping apart of the fabric of their community, but rather they're knitted together in one garment. Perfectly united can also be used of restoring bones that are broken. It's that kind of sense. And I was helped by another helpful analogy that points out that, that a difference exists between harmony and dull unison. I hope I don't turn into the kind of preacher that just shows pictures of cats on their slides, but, but I thought this was helpful. So it's the, it points out the difference between, between harmony and dull unison. It's like a chorus, should be like a chorus singing from the same page of music, perfectly united, but like a chorus singing from the same piece of music, not a cat's concert, concert with each howling his or her own cacophonous tune. What they say betrays their individualism and focus upon self. I follow such and such. I follow another. That points to the root of the problem. They were also relying on being an impressive speaker, rhetoric, sophistication, eloquence, style, honor. But the gospel is not about impressive speakers or personalities. 
And so Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Well, there's some encouragement in there, isn't there? Paul's forgetfulness makes the Bible. That's an encouragement. But here's what it comes down to. If teachers and leaders or their followers who are claiming to be Christian, if they consistently place the spotlight upon themselves rather than upon the cross of Christ and upon Christ's work, then something is very, very wrong. 4 verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As a well-known theologian from Nottingham put it, Anthony Thistleton, to treat the gospel of the cross of Christ as a vehicle for promoting self-esteem, self-fulfillment and self-assertion turns it upside down and empties it of all that the gospel offers and demands. There is an antidote to this. There is a cure for our addiction to self, for the I culture, to individualism. And that is to be authentically Christ-centered. Just look through all of the passage that we've looked at today. Just look through all of those verses and see just how many times Jesus Christ is mentioned in one way or another. Almost in every verse, he's there. And if we center our lives and our churches on Christ, then we will be enriched and united as we eagerly await for Christ to return. In one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis Lewis tells the story of how much the land of Narnia has forgotten the story of Aslan's defeat of the White Witch, the Pevensey children and even Aslan's very existence. Prince Caspian's old nurse used to tell him stories about them until she was dismissed by the wicked King Miraz. But towards the end of the book, Aslan, who's the the Christ figure in those stories, Aslan returns, and he begins to put everything right again. Aslan himself visits the house of the nurse, who by this point was old and frail and seemingly on her deathbed. She was at death's door. But when she opened her eyes and saw the bright hairy head of the lion staring into her face, she did not scream or faint. She said, oh, Aslan, I knew it was true. I've been waiting for this all my life. One day, Jesus will come back and make all things new. We eagerly await him. God will keep you firm to the end. God is faithful. Let's pray. 
and as we turn our hearts and minds both backwards and forwards as we come to share the Lord's Supper. Let's center our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on Christ.